rumors say that in the 1960s Cycladic figurines were leaving the islands in loaves of bread or heads of cheese. Marble figurines made around 5,000 years ago in the Cycladic islands of the Aegean became all the rage for collectors and a great influence in modernist art. Easily looted and almost as easily faked, these objects have a unique role in the modern world. The question is, what was their role in the ancient world? Episode 2, Figure Drawing. That's what they are if we talk about the formal attributes. Figurines, idols, small representations, small-scale representations of the human form. Hi, you're listening to Looted. I'm Zoe, and I'm still an archaeologist, since the last episode, I mean. But it's been a while since I've actually dug in the dirt, which is probably what you imagine an archaeologist doing. Something involving either a toothbrush and or a whip, thanks Indiana Jones for the latter. But archaeologists actually wear a lot of hats. And speaking of Indy, it's almost never a fedora. Besides fieldwork, which can be digging, but also very often something called survey archaeology, where you are studying finds you find on the surface of the ground, we can be professors, work in conservation and other kinds of labs. We also work at museums. Or we can do a combination of all or some of these. At any rate, we are actually all on the same team. We want to study old stuff, but we really can't study it when it's looted. Hence, this podcast. I hope that telling the stories of the illicit trade and antiquities will help to fight against this widespread and devastating, but unfortunately extremely lucrative business. Alright, on the last episode, which was the first episode, I talked about the effect of looting on one particular object, the 4th century BC gold wreath. Maybe you think so, what's one wreath? Big deal. Well, go back and listen and you'll see. It's really not just one. It's the shiny, sparkling tip of the iceberg. But perhaps I can convince you with this. What about an entire group of objects that has been looted? Was it daylight? or in the darkness of the night that they were uprooted from their island home? Rumors say that the campaigns against them were conducted in the autumn, after the first rains of the year, when the soil was soft, and in the night illuminated by the full moon. Those are the words of Christos Dumas, a Greek archaeologist, recounting the looting of the Bronze Age figurines from the Cycladic islands of the Aegean Sea. The Cyclades are the small, mountainous islands between mainland Greece and Turkey and include some of the famous destinations you've probably heard of, like Santorini, Mykonos, and Paros with their windmills and whitewashed houses, bright sunshine, and blue-green waters for swimming. There's even a Contes Hotel on Paros, no relation to yours truly as far as I know. But other islands, such as Naxos, Keros, and Syros, are just as beautiful and it is these islands where many of the objects I'll be referring to today come from. These 3rd millennium BCE figures, found predominantly in graves, are made of white marble and are anthropomorphic. Some types are very abstract, with just the barest indication of a human shape. This type most closely resembles a violin, with the neck of the instrument the neck of the figure. Of the less abstract types, the figures are predominantly female, with heads that can be triangular or squarish, or oval, attached to sometimes long, Cleopatra-like necks, 
sometimes shorter ones that look like the figures are wearing like a thick winter turtleneck or a like a neck brace for a case of whiplash. Sloping, angular shoulders follow, with breasts like two candy dots on the chest, arms typically folded over the body just below, above an incised indication of a waistline and pubic triangle. Legs are held together, either merely delineated by a carved line or with a bit of space in between. The feet have toes pointing downwards. This is a key detail that has been read to indicate that the figures must have been situated in a reclining position, since they can't stand up on their own. Another, more recent suggestion is that they were carried in processions. They have an average size of 8 to 20 inches. For comparison, a well-known modern figurine, the Barbie doll, is 11.5 inches. But we have some examples that are nearly five feet tall. Those things are pretty spectacular. Their facial features can consist of simply a prominent carved nose, but painted details are sometimes used. Like other ancient marbles, the image we have of stark, pure whiteness was not necessarily the case. And in fact, there is recent evidence which shows that they were painted not just once, but more than once, suggesting that the paint may have been part of the particular ritual in which they were involved. With the island's luminous, almost translucent marble and readily available emery to use in shaping and polishing the stone, the highly skilled craftsmen of the Cycladic culture produce sculptures which have been described by archaeologists Colin Renfrew as among the greatest moments of human achievement. Another archaeologist, Christos Dumas, who I've already mentioned, considers the figurines as, quote, tangible manifestations of this Aegean ideal of Man is the measure of all things, whether, he says, the figures portray gods or men. Which kind of seems a weird way to put it, considering most of them are female. These figures weren't always considered so inspirational, however. When they first became known to the public in the 19th century, the figurines were considered unattractive, barbaric even. Sporadic references in the 19th and early 20th centuries referred to them as stiff and inexpressive forms of a primitive island culture and of greater anthropological than artistic interest, since only classical works could really be considered art. But by the 1950s and 60s, their simple linear aesthetic meshed with the artistic style of the time and became extremely popular with collectors. And they've been popular ever since. They also inspired modern artists such as Henry Moore and Picasso which in turn further fueled their popularity. Henry Moore himself said, I'm sure the well-known Cycladic head at the Louvre influenced Brancusi and was the parent of his sculpture, that simple oval egg-shaped form he called the beginning of the world. As an aside, we have a fabulous Henry Moore sculpture on the campus of Kenyon College. It's in the science quad. Arts and science do mix, after all. All right, so due to their popularity, of the approximately 1,600 Cycladic figurines that exist in collections today, perhaps only 15% come from known excavated contexts. Looters ravaged the early Bronze Age sites of the islands to find them, destroying not only the context for the figurines themselves, but for any other artifacts contained in the graves in which they were often found. But not all graves would have had them. Regardless, these also would have been destroyed by the treasure hunters. It is estimated, therefore, that somewhere between 10 to 12,000 graves were destroyed. They were everywhere. On moonlight nights, they were digging everywhere. 
and so I was running behind to rescue what I could. There must be hundreds of cemeteries from the late 1950s, early 1960s onwards, and some of them, they have been totally ruined. We don't know any existing cemetery that has not been touched. Dumas recalls. Nor will they ever be able to tell us through which hands and via which channel they reached their final place of exile. Rumors say that in the 1960s, Cycladic figurines were leaving the islands in loaves of bread or heads of cheese. Even this wasn't enough to meet the demands of the collectors, and an industry of forgeries began. The looted objects in turn support this industry because the fakes can easily go undetected when the majority of the body, pun intended, of a class of objects has no archaeological context. According to scholar Ricardo Elia, 34% of figures could be forged, but we have no way to prove or disprove this. Neither scientific tests nor expert eye can definitively determine the age of marble. But we know for sure that there are fakes, and in some cases, we know who was making them. One well-known story is that of a man named Angelos on the island of Eos, who got involved in criminal activity early on, cultivating opium poppy, selling hashish, and then moving on to selling antiquities. He had a particular predilection for robbing Cycladic graves and would hire the owners of the fields which he was rifling through to help him dig. But he was also an amateur stone carver who would make his own versions of the figurines, then bury them in his backyard for a while so they could take on a more aged patina before putting them on the market. It's even suggested that the looting of figurines declined in the 1970s due to the great number of forgeries being made. Think of the magnitude of information that has been lost about these sculptures. Go to your local museum, and if it has Greek antiquities, it's bound to have a figurine. There are over 200 of them in U.S. museum collections alone. See what the label says and what you can learn from it. Or just believe me that the answer is nothing. You will typically find absolutely no mention of where a sculpture was found, no mention of its actual function. Really, what were these things? Images of the dead? Votive offerings, use in a procession, toys, and a year of acquisition sometime between 1950 and 1970. You might also find them inspiring contemporary art or advertising, such as the logo for the Cincinnati Museum of Art, in which their figurine, one on the bigger side at 18 inches with a big nothing on its label, has somehow lost its female anatomy. Or you may find them taking on the characteristics of art with a capital A, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York goes so far as to elevate them to works of art connected to masters and even the art historical term mannerism. If you dig a little deeper, you'll find that the Met's, quote, Bastis master figurine was originally purchased from a known dealer of illicit antiquities. And in fact, of the 12 cycladic figures, nine figurines, three heads by my count, in the Met's possession, guess how many have an excavated context? Zero. Perhaps you think, well, whatever, this happened a long time ago and there's nothing we can do about it. Consider this. Christie's auctioned one of these figurines, another masterwork, in 2010, with an estimated value of three to five million. But guess what it sold for? 16 million dollars, not drachmas. Two of the dealers who have handled this particular object have been tried and convicted for dealing in stolen goods. The market is alive and well. 
I recently went to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston to look at their collection of Cycladic figurines, and I couldn't find a single one, nor any Greek early Bronze Age material, for that matter, on display. In fact, when I asked multiple people where I could find them, I was told by a docent that the Greeks didn't make sculpture. Talk about erasing a whole class of objects. Let's hope they are just being conserved and will soon be back on display. But one of the biggest and best collections of these figurines is in Athens at the Goulandris Museum. And you might be surprised to learn that the majority of these, too, have no actual excavated context. In fact, the Goulandris family, wealthy collectors of Cycladic art, likely unintentionally encouraged more looting since they provided a guaranteed buyer for the figures. I was at the museum recently, walking through it, recording my reactions to the figures in anticipation of this program. And I had to talk in my creepy under my breath museum voice in case someone got suspicious. The recordings are uh, shockingly bad, not surprisingly, so I won't play them for you. But it was an absolutely incredible collection with figurines of all styles and sizes, including a massive one, bigger than I am. Well, thinner, but almost as tall. All right, so that's an exaggeration. It's about four and a half feet, but floating in its display case, it looks me right in the eye. Here's the thing, none of the big ones, including a torso at my alma mater, Bowdoin College, have a firm, fine spot. Could they all be fakes? It's possible. Bigger is better, right? So if you're a forger and you want collectors to buy your piece instead of someone else's, how do you differentiate without getting too creative and alerting them to its fakeness? Well, make it bigger. Or think about the famous harp player from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Same thing. When you are talking about artifacts, something described as unique or one of its kind, like that figure is, should make you think twice. If you're interested in fakes and how they end up in museums, I'll have another episode coming up dedicated to them. I spoke recently with archaeologist and professor Athena Hadzi about another figure in a Greek museum, this one on the Greek island of Rhodes. Professor Hadzi is an expert in Cycladic archaeology, currently based in Ankara, Turkey. Kalimera, Professor Hadzi. Kalimera, or as we say around here, Gunaydan. Okay, so can you tell us the story of the, the anthropomorphic sculpture, the figurine that you are studying? So the story is that um, it belongs to a number of artifacts that are unfortunately out of archaeological context. It might be surprising to some listeners that, that these figurines can be looted but still be in Greece. Oh, definitely. So, as somebody who goes to the Rhodes Museum and sees your figurine, what can what can this person, just a regular person, learn about that figure as it's just in the museum, as it is in the museum? This particular one, not much, other than of course admire the the sheer genius that's produced it. Again, the form is perfect. It's teeny tiny. It's nine point three centimeters long. It fits perfectly in the palm of your hand. So what he or she can learn is that people 5,000 years ago made beautiful things, which they coveted and they passed from generation to generation. But that's it. It's completely out of context because it's the only cycladic um, find from Rose. As you say, I mean, when you see those, you really, as the viewer, you, you might be in, impressed by how well they're made, how beautiful they are. Mm-hmm. But you, can't, you have no idea. I mean, there's nothing you can learn from them, seeing them in these exhibits. 
Unless uh, you go to a teeny tiny state museum in one of the Cycladic islands, mm-hmm. or or a major one like the Naxos Museum that has one of the richest collections and almost all of the sculpture exhibited there comes from known and legally excavated archaeological complexes. So the National Archaeological Museum in uh, Athens also. Most uh, other museums in Greece and abroad, especially abroad, private and state museums, they exhibit them with no context whatsoever. And it's the statistics are infallible. The labels that uh, accompany them are always cycladic, third millennium, found in the cyclades, sometimes donated, purchased, etc., depending on how transparent the museum wants to exactly. present itself as. But it, it's been slowly changing, which is a good thing. There's some acknowledgement of earlier practices that are not necessarily something that museums are willing to do. But yes, the vast majority, they're out of context, of course. Yeah, and they're also displayed, most of them, standing up. Mm-hmm. Which is not something that they can actually do. They can't stand, no. They cannot stand. No, they cannot stand the poor things. <laughs> they have pointy feet. They were not supposed to stand. They're um, victims of the Barbie premise. You know how they said that if exactly. Barbie, a Barbie was a real woman, she would not be able to stand. They cannot stand. They were not meant to stand. They were not meant to just to be seen. The, the fact that the exhibit, exhibit them standing up is very indicative of how narrow our perception is, the, the, the priority of the visual, because we consider them as art. And in terms of, I will say again, the formal qualities, the aesthetic aspects, yes, they are. They're very artfully and skillfully made, and the result is very pleasing to the eye. But um, they're not art in the sense that we're used to the academic art that we got used to from the 18th century onwards. I make something to look at it. No. No. And that's why they, I mean, that's what I think. They look kind of uncool and miserable when we exhibit them standing up. There's something off. There's something wrong. And you can tell immediately. They're not comfortable. So how do you think they were comfortable? Do you have any idea as to what their actual function was? This is very hard, and this this has been the greatest challenge in their study from uh, when we first started, they first started um, excavating them or bumping into them accidentally. All right, I just want to pause for a minute, although I've got more of our international Skype session to play for you. But I want to talk a little bit about the function of these objects. Many suggestions have been made, and it's not necessarily the case that they had only a single function. They've been proposed to be images of ancestors or divinities, talismans to ward off bad spirits and common dangerous activities in early Bronze Age island life, such as any kind of seafaring, representations of the deceased, or even toys. Don't let the two mentions of Barbie already in this episode lead you in that direction, however. Our uncertainty lies in the loss of contextual information, and not, as suggested by the label on the figurine at the Emory University Michael C. Carlos Museum, that, quote, the significance or functions of these sculptures 
created in a pre-literate society is necessarily unknown beyond the fact that most have been recovered from graves, although some have also been found in settlements. In fact, new results from recent excavations are providing a whole new perspective of these figures and how they might have been used. The scholars who work with it, we try to approach them from different angles. What I am convinced about, and there is evidence, is that um, I would say that they were multifunctional and that it, it had their use. You know, when you use something, it doesn't have to be utilitarian. Everything that you do, there is a use. Symbolic uses are equally valid uses as completely um, everyday functional ones. So the use has a lot to do with performance. That's why I feel sad when they're hanging or are forced to stand in the museum displays because the average size, the fact that most of them fit very nicely in a human hand, the fragmentation, the undisputed evidence for deliberate fragmentation, the so-called rightly called so, uh, open air sanctuary on the island of Keros. New results from recent excavations are providing a whole new perspective of these figures and how they might have been used. And this is what Professor Hadzi is referring to. On the island of Keros, archaeologists have been studying a cache of these objects, which has revealed itself as a group of figurines broken in antiquity and transported here from somewhere else. Not a single fragment of a figurine matches another. The excavators are positing some kind of sanctuary connected to a nearby building in use seasonally. And specialist studies, such as on metallurgy and faunal remains, just to name two, are being conducted on many aspects of the site. This provides incredible possibilities for learning more about the figurines. That's a very recent excavation as well. There were performative aspects. The paint that was applied of them, and for years and years we denied, because it clashed with the idea of the whiteness and the purity of our modernism doesn't do crazy red and blue paint. Modernism doesn't do eyes on thighs and stomachs and foreheads of figures. This is a completely different culture that has a completely different idea of where things should go on um, anthropomorphic sculptures, anatomy and what they should represent in a symbolic way. And analyses that were done on the application, the time of the application of paint showed that paint was applied and reapplied. Their positioning in graves, there's so many factors that we have never considered together. So this is the greatest problem, not that they don't talk. There was a very nice exhibition once of Cycladic figures that was called Silent Witnesses. Right. It's not that they're silent, it's that we couldn't hear them. Because they were, I mean, they were destroyed, their context was lost. Because the context was destroyed also, because we were blind, we were colorblind, literally, <laughs> for one thing, and then we never um, studied the different and sometimes um, diverse uh, bits and pieces of information that we had about them. But mostly, yes, because they were out of context. That was such a disaster. That was irreparable damage. And now that more are emerging with systematic excavations, 
starting in the 2000s and um, continuing until today, we learn so much more. Here's the lead excavator of the site, Colin Renfrew, speaking at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. So what seems to be happening, I think, is that there are uh, rituals, life rituals, maybe rites of passage, uh, and these figurines had a use life, and at the end of the use life, one or two of them were indeed buried in graves, buried entire with grave goods, which is how they occur in the Cycladic cemeteries, but the great majority were deliberately broken, and a fragment, but not the complete remains, brought on a journey, a pilgrimage, let's call it now, uh, a pilgrimage to Keros and placed there in the special deposit. So in conclusion, it's so exciting to think about what we can learn about these objects going forward, but there's just no excuse for the information that has been lost. You heard it there, listeners. Thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. That's it for today, but there are many more artifacts with stories to be told. Looted is back in two weeks with the next episode. Check out www.lootedpodcast.org for images related to this broadcast, as well as links to further online reading about the figurines and selected sources I used in my research. There are many excellent scholars studying these issues. This podcast is made possible with the support of the Whiting Foundation and Kenyon College. Special thanks to the University of Pennsylvania Museum, Professor Athena Hadzi, and Steve Kaminsky. Original music by Noah Weinman. Check out his band, Park Strangers, on Bandcamp. Kozmas Hadzis and Tim Speakerman provided voices to quotes. Sound clip of Colin Renfrew at the University of Pennsylvania Museum by YouTube. Do we giggle? Are we very yeah. serious? No, no, no. We can giggle. It's fine. Okay. It's yeah. Fine. <laughs>